0: Hello, and welcome to the Clinical Care Options Infectious Disease Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Adams. In this episode, we answer your questions about providing PrEP to adolescents, including the potential for adverse effects, barriers adolescents face in obtaining PrEP, how to discuss PrEP with adolescents and their families, strategies to retain adolescents on PrEP, and where healthcare professionals who want to prescribe PrEP can obtain training to do so. For more information on this program, please visit the show notes for this episode. Joining us today are our two expert faculty members, Dr. Fields and Dr. Wood. Dr. Errol Fields is Associate Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent Young Adult Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, And Sarah Wood is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Adolescent Medicine at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and Children's Hospital of Philadelphia in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Our first question is from Bernice, who asks about the science behind kidney damage with certain PrEP agents and whether that is a concern, especially for adolescents.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And, and often I get a lot of questions about safety of PrEP for adolescents. The combination that we think about with having some impaired tubular secretion of creatinine, which means you can get some impaired renal function in rare cases, is tenofovir and m together because it's a renal metabolized drug. I think what's important to know, though, is that we screen everybody with a creatinine level before we start, that in young and healthy people, it's actually very rare to have any renal abnormalities associated with PrEP. And typically in the PrEP studies, when people have had mild increases in that creatinine, that kidney marker level, when they've stopped PrEP, that's resolved. So I do still really counsel that this is uh, a safe and effective medication combination. Although certainly we wanna calculate that creatinine clearance before we start, make sure it's a safe option. We now check creatinines once a year. It used to be every six months, but actually the data on kidney function is so good that we only need to look once a year. And for people who might have a strong family history or another concern from renal or kidney health perspective, we're gonna talk about all the options. We know that the risk of any renal impairment is going to be less with the tenofovir alafenamide and the TAF FTC, just given that it can bypass, uh, it's a pro-drug that can bypass some of that renal metabolism. And then with cabotegravir, we don't see a renal impairment issue. And so remembering that we have multiple options on the table and again, doing that shared decision-making to counsel on what's best for an individual patient. Dr. Fields, anything you wanted to add to that?
2: No, I think you you nailed the, head, the the nail on the head with that response. I think that, again, there are lots of different options, and certainly the caprotech of your option doesn't have any impact on on kidney function at all. There are other challenges with an injectable medication. But certainly, I think if we are, uh, my practice is really to talk about all the options, all the pros and cons of each option, and help um, make that decision along with, with the patient and or the parent if they're involved in that discussion.
0: All right. Great. We've had a whole bunch of questions come in, which is fantastic. Um, So the next question is from Christina. She asks, can you speak to payment options, please? And maybe since you're in different states and different areas, if there's any differences between the two of you, that would be great to hear as well.
2: Yeah. So there are PrEP payment options are certainly a challenge, and I think there's a, there are a couple of options that are available. It does vary depending on where you practice and the, the programs that are available in, in your state. I would I would be remiss if I didn't mention the one federal um, payment option, which is particularly for folks who are uninsured or under, underinsured, largely for those who are uninsured. Um, it's the Ready, Set PrEP program, and it is able to provide um, PrEP medication for those individuals who don't have insurance coverage to pay for those medications. There's also for those who are insured and have high copay options, the, there are copayment coupons and copayment options that are provided by some of the manufacturers um, that can help with the, the, the copay costs that might be involved with that. Certainly there are many of the um, local health departments in different um, states and different parts of the country have prep programs that were able to provide the prep prescription as well as the medical care either for free or on a sliding scale based on folks' income and their ability to pay. And so that's certainly partnering with your local health department can be an option for providing PrEP to those who don't have access. There are some states, Maryland's not one of them, which I'm the, which I'm often oftentimes envious. Um, there are some states who have uh, included drug assistance, prep, um, drug assistance into their HIV drug assistance programs that have typically been Uh, specifically for those folks living with HIV, but those states have recognized that there's certainly a continuum and a spectrum, and if we're able to provide uh, free medications through that program, that will limit the number of people who actually end up needing HIV treatment. Uh, And so those are available in in some states as well.
1: Yeah, I would say um, I'm in Pennsylvania, and our landscape is uh, pretty similar to what Dr. Fields has in Maryland. I think one thing that always intersects with the cost issue is the confidentiality issue when you have an adolescent who's under age 18. And so while many teens are going to want to use their insurance to cover their prep, sometimes if you're on your parents' insurance, although you might have good coverage, there may be a confidentiality issue. So one thing we certainly try to do a lot in our clinic is in our state, we don't have our Medicaid payers do explanation of benefits. and so. If we have a young adult who um, may be otherwise Medicaid uh, eligible, certainly working with them to get their own insurance coverage or to be their own primary, um, get their own primary or job-based plan so that basically all the coverage goes through them instead of going through a parent.
0: Great. Thank you. RW asks, I wonder if you could speak more specifically about PrEP for individuals under 18. Do we have good data on how many adolescents are vulnerable to HIV? And then they also ask, is HIV vulnerability the same for a 14-year-old versus a 17-year-old? And can you talk a little bit about that?
1: That's a great question. So we have really one large study that looked at PrEP in individuals who are under 18 from a safety and adherence perspective. And that's um, one of the Adolescent Trials Network studies that showed that PrEP was um, safe and well-tolerated in that population. But the biggest challenge was actually adherence, making sure that adolescents were actually taking their PrEP as scheduled. So I think in terms of uh, is PrEP safe, is PrEP effective in adolescents, the answer is yes. We also um, have a lot of data on our ten-of-a-year based PrEP options from the HIV treatment world, and we can sort of extrapolate some of that safety data over to younger adolescents from uh, using those medications for HIV treatment. I think to the question about um, vulnerability to HIV, in adolescence, it's a really important question. And we know that actually young adolescents are highly vulnerable to HIV. We also know that they're less likely to get tested for HIV. And so we often diagnose um, HIV late in adolescence. In terms of the question of whether a 14 year old is as vulnerable as a 17 year old, we know that rates of sexual activity go up every year with age. And so If we looked at the whole population of 14-year-olds, certainly not as many are having sex as 17-year-olds. But the caveat to that is teens who start having sex younger are actually less likely to use condoms, less likely to um, use preventative health behaviors, more likely to acquire sexually transmitted infections. And so it's actually sometimes that very young population who is kind of the most highly vulnerable to HIV, because they may not have the preventative services and options in place. And then for people who are assigned female sex at birth, we know that the cervix is actually going through some transformations and changes through adolescence that actually leave uh, adolescent girls and young women or, or adolescents who are assigned female sex at birth to be more vulnerable than older, assigned female sex at birth individuals to to HIV. Dr. Fields, anything you wanted to add to that?
2: Yeah, I would just, you know, I would just add that it's super important. I mean, we could think about um, from a population perspective, certainly there's going to be changes in risk from a population perspective, but it's super important to have that individual conversation and individual assessment of risk for acquisition within patients. Um, I echo all the, the comments that Dr. Wood made about the risk that uh, an adolescent age 14 might have as compared to one with someone who's older. Um, just anecdotally speaking, um, and, you know, as a provider in this field, I've, I've unfortunately had a number of patients who I've diagnosed at age 15. Oftentimes, um, their the setup is that they've, for instance, they've had their adolescent vaccine visits and they haven't been back to their provider since then. And in that time, they've, they've had their sexual debut um, and without the supports around uh, safer sex practices, around condom negotiation, around engaging with their partner and all of the things and the risks that some populations have to um, be exposed to adult populations, which have a higher sort of prevalence within those sexual networks of HIV that just creates that risk of scenario. And if, if we don't engage with adolescents around their particular circumstances then, and rely on sort of population-based estimates, we, we, we may miss um, that risk of that population, the risk for that population.
0: Okay. Do either of you have a recommendation for formal training for somebody who wants to implement PrEP in their practice?
2: Yeah. So the, um, the AIDS education and training centers, which are regional and exist in each of the states um, in the U.S., have some great, um, both locally, but I think as well as on their online presence, have great curriculum that can um, give you information about how to implement PrEP in your practice. There are a number of other campaigns. I think there's a PrEP Me campaign, which has specific resources for uh, for providers that want to become involved with PrEP training. The CDC uh, has some um, great resources, including a, a hotline of sorts where um, providers can call to get specific information and ask specific questions about how to implement PrEP and how to integrate PrEP into their clinical services and really specific questions that you might have about the particular medications or particular monitoring and follow up. You can get those answers to those questions through that hotline. I don't have the name of it at the top of mind, but that's something that's accessible through the, the CDC and through the HIV, I mean, the uh, PrEP guidelines. But yeah, there's lots, of, there's lots of those resources that are available. Um, there's webinars like these as well, um, so I think the good place to start is the or the, is the CDC website.
0: All right, Joe asks, can you please address bone density concerns in the adolescent population on prep? Yeah,
1: this is another common safety question that I get. So the ATN Adolescent Trials Network 117 study looked at bone density in adolescents using tenofovir emtricitabine based prep and found that there were some decreases in bone mineral density in the hip in those who had high adherence versus low adherence. So the way that I talk about this with my patients is, again, we want to center everything on development, 15 to 25. We're all laying down our peak bone density. Uh, You get to be my age. The ship has sailed. Um, So we want our adolescents in general to be doing weight-bearing exercise, have good calcium intake, and I do mention when we talk about the PrEP options that there is some slowing in the accrual of bone mineral density or data to support that in people who use that one specific form of PrEP. We don't see that effect. Um, we don't worry about that magnitude of PrEP in our um, capotagravir or our, our CAF FTC options. But I really want to emphasize that even in the tenofovir and group, those changes are very mild. And when people stop tenofovir they reverse. And so the analogy I usually use is we use progesterone acetate contraception widely in adolescent girls and young women. We know there's bone mineral density effects for those as well. And it's really for each individual person, again, that shared decision-making really weighing the benefit of each particular formulation of PrEP against those risks, which are generally thought to be, again, quite mild and reversible. Dr. Fields?
2: Nothing to add. It's similar to um, to depot proge- progesterone in terms of the impact on bone density. And it's unlike some other medications where we are, are so worried about bone density, where we would check a DEXA scan, that's not indicated and not recommended for for PrEP.
0: Okay. Does PrEP have any negative reactions or drug-drug interactions with hormone therapy for gender-affirming care for trans girls or women?
2: So that's a good question. Um, there's been some good studies to look at that. There's no evidence that PrEP um, increases or raises increases or decreases hormone levels in folks who are on um, cross-hormone therapy for gender-affirming care.
0: Great. And does long-acting cabotegravir need an oral lead-in? And I'm going to add to that, do you suggest anything differently in adolescents or young people as far as doing or not doing that oral lead-in?
1: The oral leading is optional. And, you know, we're sounding like broken records here on the shared decision-making, but it's really one of the foundations of good patient-centered adolescent care and goes a long way to supporting and building health literacy in our patients. So it's it's an individual decision. In my practice, I talk to patients. I say there's no medical reason to do the oral lead-in. However, if you want to if you're someone who likes to test drive a car before you buy it um, and you want to make sure that you um, are feeling okay on the medication before we do the first injection, is it a long-acting medication? Then certainly the oral lead-in is an option. I will emphasize though that a lot of my patients who go on injectable cabotegravir do so because they hate taking pills. And so in that case, you know, if they've already come in and said, "I'm not going to take um, tenofovir-based prep. I'm not going to take daily oral prep. I want to be protected. I'm highly motivated." Then again, that optional oral lead-in may not be what they choose, and that's that's fine. I think sometimes we get in this we want to prove that they can take it mentality, and I try to steer people away from that because again. Really, the ability to adhere to an injectable medication is going to be driven by their sort of motivation, awareness, and education. And so my job is to really build those, not ensure that people have to prove that they can adhere to a medication before they start it.
0: Okay. Sam asks, what guidance or support do you provide for adolescents who are taking PrEP secretly and are concerned about their parents or guardians finding out if they live together?
2: Yeah. So great question. And one that I've encountered recently, I, again, I would say this is not a reason to break confidentiality at all, but I also often recommend to patients and provide my support in doing so with having conversations with their parents about their HIV prevention and and wanting to prevent, um, using PrEP to prevent HIV HIV acquisition. We know from the data for adolescents who are living with HIV that parents are aware They're much more likely to be adherent to their medications. They have the support around getting prescription refills and maintaining their viral suppression. But those living with HIV, those would transfer over to adherence for PrEP. We know that there are lots of adherence barriers that adolescents have from those Adolescent Trial Network uh, studies that Dr. Wood mentioned. So having parental support, I think, is, is really important. Now, barring that, there are certainly situations and circumstances where that's just not possible. And so I think there are, are, um, there's some layers to that. So certainly I've had patients whose parents were aware that they were sexually active, but not their sexual orientation, which was what the sticking point was for those patients. And having discussions around just that PrEP is for everyone who's sexually active, who may be at risk for acquisition is one conversation that we can have with parents without disclosing the part of their identity that they wish to remain undisclosed. But barring all that, if it's certainly not, if it's not an option to have discussions with parents at all, I think it's uh, several important things that can help support youth. We, in our practice, have PrEP navigators, so individuals that are sort of near peer, they're young adults who can help with ensuring that folks are able to get access to their prescription refills, and make sure they're getting their appointments for their PrEP follow-ups met, um, they have transportation to get to those appointments checking with them on their adherence, basically providing that additional support um, so that they can remain adherent and and really remain adherent to the treatment visits as well, which is oftentimes one of the, the biggest barriers. So if we can't have parents involved, making sure that there are other supports. If you don't have prep navigators in your space, there are other trusted adults often that adolescents can rely on to help to make sure that they have that support.
0: Great. And that kind of goes along with the next question from Kylan. Have you ever experienced any homophobic or transphobic pushback from parents when prescribing PrEP?
1: Unfortunately, I have. I will say it's been the exception for me and not the rule. And so to Dr. Fields's point, I always feel like if there is a way to get the parent involved, we want to try to get the parent involved. And sometimes for some adolescents, it's just uh, I recently had a 14-year-old not want to... Disclosed to their parent. And when we kind of got down to the reasons, it was really honestly like, I am embarrassed. I don't want to have this conversation. Can you tell her? And I was like, oh, yeah, sure. That's, you know, so that's something where we can always explore a little bit what those barriers are. However, unfortunately, there are situations where disclosure about PrEP can lead to homophobia or transphobia from the parent. And so I do think safety assessments are really important. Um, Often when I have a younger adolescent who's taking PrEP and they don't want to talk to their parent, I often ask why and really explicitly ask what would happen if they found out. Because understanding early on if there's a safety concern or a risk of homelessness allows us to better support that youth. One thing I will say when we talk about confidentiality that I always talk to my patients about that they're aware of outside of just insurance is texting from the pharmacies when the prescription goes in. The one situation that I had where we did have a parent really sort of ostracize and isolate their teen because of PrEP, everyone at the clinic had sort of done the right thing to protect the young person's confidentiality, but they got an automated text from the pharmacy that went to the parents saying their prescription was ready for pickup. And, and that was kind of the inciting thing. So I I do think, you know, number one, just like we use PPE when we're drawing blood or put a mask on when we're worried about COVID, we have universal precautions about a lot of things. We should have universal precautions about trauma too, and really um, practice trauma-informed care with all of our adolescents and really explore safety and screen for safety with all of our adolescents as well.
0: Irene asks, what are some of the reasons why adolescents discontinue PrEP? What are some of the strategies you are using to retain adolescents on PrEP?
2: Yeah, so I think um, that's also a really good question and, a, and really a significant challenge that we've seen in our practice as well. Our navigator system, our PrEP navigator system has been really super important for keeping folks on PrEP, largely because I think there's there are all the logistics that are involved with being engaged in any type of biomedical HIV prevention strategy. There's getting the prescription refilled and all the challenges with getting a prescription refilled. There's making it to the appointments, the transportation to the appointment, there's insurance gaps, all of those logistical barriers and the barriers around just navigating the healthcare system are super difficult for teenagers and young adults and some of us adults as well. Um, and so having navigators that can really help them work through all of those challenges and help lower some of those barriers is super, is super helpful. Again, I recognize that that's not something that all places will have access to. So I think a way around that, if you don't have access to those things, again, is really having those conversations with adolescents from the onset really, from starting the time point when you're starting prep to help them, think about what are the things that are going to be difficult for you to kind of continue to taking prep on a daily basis, for coming in for those appointments, really making clear what, what the steps that are going to be needed to maintain prep and, and having them think through, and really using a motivational interviewing approach, how they might. Uh, surmount some of those barriers that they might anticipate. I think another big challenge and big reason why adolescents may discontinue PrEP is, is again, we've had, we oftentimes have the conversation about PrEP around these discussions around risk. Uh, And they're oftentimes really specific to that person's individual sexual behavior. We oftentimes use um, getting a, a sexually transmitted infection, a diagnosis of a new STI is a teachable moment. So see, you're you are at risk because you have gotten this this STI, so that means you're also at risk for HIV. And I think, again, that kind of risk paradigm um, is flawed because people in general don't think of themselves as risky, even if you're sort of using it around this sort of teachable moment that, that doesn't really work. Again, instead, really kind of thinking about how is how is this approach going to be helpful for you in terms of getting where you would where you'd like to be in terms of maintaining your sexual health I think it's also really um, what's been really an important strategy for me is taking the risk outside of the individual behavior and really thinking about the the sexual network and having discussions with adolescents about their sexual network and that there's risk, involved in risk for HIV acquisition that really falls outside of their individual behavior. And that PrEP is something that they can use as they can incorporate into their individual behavior to really protect them against those things when they don't have as much control over. Um, And so really the way in which we frame the discussion about PrEP as an HIV prevention tool, um, I think is is important um, because we often have that discontinuation because people think that they are not really at risk, that this is not something that they really need. And we also have to recognize that sometimes there are stages of risk, and if someone may no longer be in a scenario where they um, need PrEP and really being able to talk with them about that and not dismiss that, um, will keep them engaged um, so that you can really provide them with the appropriate guidance um, when they have differences and changes in their behavior.
1: The only thing I would add to that, and I think that was such a beautiful statement about why we use positive frame and why we avoid the risk-based language, is that when we have people discontinue, making sure we have the door open for them to come back. Um, So we really have a judgment-free policy for people when they stop their PrEP. Um, We have a judgment-free policy for when people fall out of care. So we might not see someone for nine months, and then they pop back into clinic, and the first thing we say is, welcome back, we've missed you. You know, it's not where did you go? What happened? Why did you stop your prep? We're like, we're just so glad you're here. And I think we really try to focus on our clinic on building a youth centered model, having youth voices represented and how we run the clinic that we actually have a lot of patients who I prescribe prep for and they're still on the fence about it and they keep coming back in and they haven't quite started yet. And, and so I've sort of changed our clinic motto to be come for the clinic, stay for the prep. You know, we can deal with all the other things too. We can manage our health in other ways. And when someone is ready, willing, motivated to start prep, we can work on getting those barriers out of the way. And if the barriers become too many, when they come back in, we'll start over again. So really a stigma and judgment-free space is so important.
0: Great. We still have a ton of questions, which is fantastic. We're going to get to as many as we can, but I just looked through and I'm trying to group them kind of into buckets. So I may be combining some coming up. We've had a couple of people ask you to elaborate a little bit on on-demand prep and whether that is something that you are using or discussing with your adolescent patient.
1: On-demand prep, um, or you know, as we call it, the two-one-one, is an alternate strategy for prep dosing. Again, as Dr. Field said, it's really um, directed to individuals assigned male sex at, at birth. And that's partially because there's just not enough data to demonstrate that the cervicovaginal compartment gets enough protection from that 211 dosing. So the idea is it's event driven. You have to have a pretty good idea when you're going to have sex. You're taking two pills two to 24 hours before you have sex, another pill 24 hours after that and another pill 24 hours after that. And you know this can be tricky for some adolescents. I, I heard you mention that when you were talking, Dr. Fields, I'd be interested to hear how you frame this with adolescents, but teens in general um, have lower health numeracy than um, older adults. Um, and that's a little different than health literacy because we're really talking about time numbers, quantitative concepts. And what I think is really important, again, is really counseling people on how realistic is this gonna be? Do you generally know when you're having sex? I have some young people it's great for because they have one partner, their partner's in college, they know exactly when they're going to see them, or you know they're not doing much, but they know that with um, they're going on a cruise <laughs> and something might happen. Um, so, there are situations I don't want to throw it out as an option for young people because for some of my patients, it works great because they're not having a lot of sex. You know, if someone is having sex five days a week, four days a week, then you really are taking daily prep um, with the way the 211 schedule works. But for people who are having more infrequent sex, people who can plan their sex, it can be a great option. Dr. Fields, any other thoughts?
2: No, I just, I would, I think the key that you, key point that you mentioned there is that you have to know when you're going to have sex. And there are those circumstances when people know they're going to have sex. There, there are sometimes events that people travel to or go to that where they know they're going to have um, um, sex. But in, in the majority of the cases, adolescents don't really know when they're going to have sex or they don't have enough of the, even if they do know mm-hmm. that ability to sort of plan for that is sometimes challenging. Mm-hmm. Dr. would mention the health numeracy issue. Uh, so it's not something I've certainly talked about it with my patients. It's not something that I've ever prescribed to them in any in any real sense. We sort of stick with the daily option because of some of the challenges that that Dr. Wood mentioned.
0: Okay, yeah, we've had a number of questions about in about states that have mandated parental consent for prep and have strong faith based communities. How would you recommend educating parents about prep? How can we educate? adolescents about PrEP, if schools are mostly abstinent-only, sex ed. Um, And then there was a question farther down where someone asked if either of you have had success or know of anyone having success with PrEP education through faith-based organizations.
2: Great questions. Um, So at first, I'd start to say that there's not any state that specifically mandates that minors cannot consent for PrEP. But again, it does exist within that gray zone around prevention and so there are only those four states that sp- explicitly say they can. And so oftentimes, um, the the interpretation is that the parents do need to consent, but that's, that's not necessarily the case. But um, the, really, the crux of the question is how do we engage parents, um, particularly parents who might have uh, cultural or religious beliefs that um, conflict with either the sexual behavior um, or the um, sexual or gender identity of their adolescent patient? And that's a great question. I think As pediatric providers, it's really within our purview and a big part of our job to sort of engage with parents around safe and health of their children. And that's often where I start when there are those types of conflicts or those types of challenges is really leading with um, what we know about, what we know from evidence-based perspective about what's going to be the safest and healthiest option for their child. And that involves, some may involve PrEP as a, as a prevention strategy, but it also involves parental support and parental affirmation, and really starting um, with that as the root and the common goal that both the provider and the parent has is, again, around the safe and health of their adolescents. And so I have those conversations when it, when it arises about how we can keep the adolescent safe. I encourage parents to continue to have really um, strong parental monitoring because we know that that's also protective and be engaged in their adolescents' lives and to be able to communicate with them. Um, but I also um, try to be really clear about if someone is actually active, then they're at risk for HIV and they're at risk for STIs. And these are the things that we can do together to, to reduce that risk. Um, and sometimes that means having have sort of reframing the conversation and thinking differently about how the cultural religious beliefs, how we can resolve the, ch- the conflict that exists between those and, and, and healthy sexuality. I think there's definitely um, the limitations that are in place that um, reduce the ability for adolescents to get information about sexual health and about PrEP and about HIV prevention. Um, if we're not able to get that in the schools, we have to think about the other places where adolescents are and think about how we message the adolescents in those other spaces. Um, there are a number of play, there are a number of faith-based initiatives that focus on HIV prevention in adolescents and youth. And I think that those are good ways of of making sure that folks have the appropriate information that's within the cultural context that's gonna be meaningful to them and to their parents. We also know that adolescents spend a lot of time in other settings, particularly on online settings and social media settings, and thinking about ways to message to them in those spaces and message to them about prep as a prevention strategy, but also around healthy sexuality is super important. And what I think is at the root of all of this is really, um, as Dr. Wood mentioned earlier, is being youth-centered in your approach. And this often means being youth-centered in how you message, youth-centered in how you kind of address some of the challenges that were raised by the question and really getting their input on how to, how to intervene there.
0: All right. Myra asks, can you address the pros and cons of injectable cabotegravir in adolescents and how you counsel patients around this, p- particularly about the tail and necessary follow-up?
1: Yeah, this is a a great question. So, for those of you who might not be familiar with cabotegravir, it is a long-acting or depot injection of medication. The uh, steady state for the medication is two months. So, we generally have people, you know, have a very tight window around that two-month mark to be coming in. However, we know that there are some concentration of the medication that lasts well beyond two months. Can be six to nine months. And in studies in cisgender women or people assigned female sex at birth, it has been as long as a year in some of those studies. And so one of the things we worry about is if someone is on cabotegravir-based PrEP, they decide that they are no longer interested being on PrEP, they don't start an oral method, or they're not using condoms, and they have sex and are exposed to HIV, they can still have some lingering concentrations of cabotegravir hanging around. And that puts them at risk if they acquire HIV for having integrase inhibitor resistance. Integrase inhibitors are the class of drugs that Captegravir is a part of. And that becomes challenging because those integrase inhibitors, for me, that's the bread and butter of um, my first-line HIV regimen for most of my patients. So it is something, again, shared decision-making that it's important to talk to patients about. Generally, the guidance is that If someone is starting cabotegravir and they decide that they do want to stop, that we do what's called covering the tail, which means um, starting an oral prep option based on their preference or um, by sex at birth or sexual orientation, gender identity, their ability to use different of those oral options, and that we continue that until we think that they're out of that tail lingering concentration of cabotegravir. I am hearing in the question the anxiety that a lot of us have, which is are adolescents going to be able to make that decision to tell us or are people going to stop suddenly not know and be at risk? And I think that's one of those um, sort of challenging risk versus benefits or vulnerability versus benefits discussions that I have with myself and I have with my patients too, right? Because we know that that vulnerability to acquiring HIV is there now, right? And is high now. And so we want to make the decision that gives them the information that they need to decide whether that's a good option for them, which is making sure that they understand that if they stop taking it, we're going to be talking about oral prep and at the minimum bringing them in for six months to a year to be doing HIV RNAs um, periodically to make sure that they don't seropinvert. It's challenging because many adolescents, that's for forward thinking may not be. Again, that numeracy and time is not fully well developed, but we wanna give them all the options that they have to give themselves the best health protection in the moment. Some people may decide based on that information, it's not the right option for them, but some may still feel like, look, I want this protection now, this is the best way to get it. And then my job is to make sure that I can deliver that for them.
0: Thank you very much to Dr. Wood and Dr. Fields, and thanks to you, our listeners, for joining in. As a reminder to view the full program, Paths Forward in PrEP, Overcoming Barriers to PrEP Engagement in Principal Population, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening and have a great day.